Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. This show is brought to you by Flatiron's Tuning, your source for any aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts. Be sure to check out our store at flatironstuning.com, and stay tuned with Flatiron's Tuning. All right, well, let's let's kick this off, if, if, if everybody's right here. So, welcome back to everybody at home. Uh, this is episode number 56 of the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. And uh, we have today, we've got Tasso uh, in the mountains, in, in the deepest, darkest woods of Colorado. Dussex uh, is, is at his undisclosed location, and we have another special guest joining us today. We've got Harvey from the Boost Crew. Now, if you've watched some of our YouTube channel, we, we've had some, some videos with Harvey, but this is the first time that he's on the podcast. So, so welcome, Harvey. And Thank you. the reason that we brought Harvey on is we've, we've gotten some, through the years, we've gotten a ton of questions, but, but especially now that we've started doing the question of the week, we've got a, some questions about like just how tuning works, uh, some specific questions about like what, what timing does, how does timing work? And I realized that Harvey would be the perfect person to bring on to the podcast to talk about how tuning works, but to talk about how tuning works, we're really gonna have to also talk about how engines work. So just, just how engines work as a framework and then how tuning work, makes the engine work better, increases the, the efficiency of the engine, increases the power potential of the engine and so on. So that's what we are gonna talk about today. So, so Harvey, maybe as a start, let's just kind of talk through the, the basics of the internal combustion engine, the four-stroke cycle, uh, which uh, is, is easily remembered as suck, squish, bang, and blow. Uh, but mm -hmm. if you want to kind of talk through that, let's, let's start there. Okay, yeah. So uh, I'll say that we have um, two main devices when you're talking about an engine. And one is the piston, of course, going up and down. But then we have to open and close the valves. So that happens... Um, in two complete circles, which is, you know, as you know, 720 degrees, because it's 360 per circle times two, ro two. Two rotations of the engine. Yeah, two complete yeah. rotations, uh, not just, you know, 180s, but complete mm -hmm. rotations, we get 720 degrees out of it. So yep. on the first, each each of the, each, and this is crude because they do have some overlap, but uh, you can just think of it as the first, uh, half of the first rotation is one cycle. The second half of the first rotation is the second cycle the first half of the second rotation is the third cycle and the second yep. half of the second rotation is the fourth cycle so on that uh, if we start at the top with the piston at the top oh and just so we know that something this has to happen over and over and on, on each of those cycles something happens with either the valves or combustion itself so yep. when we talk about it we want to sort of compartmentalize it into those four sections but we also want to say Hey, how does how does this actually happen with the valves? If you want to know that, then you have to know about what's called valve timing. So usually there is yep. a um, a chain or some sort of belt, and its ratio is always a two to one circle. So every time the the piston turns over, uh, the timing for the camshafts moves uh, about literally half as fast because we only want one event per 180 degrees, and we want it to happen again after two rotations. So on the third rotation around, essentially on the sec beginning of the second set of the four stroke cycle, you want it to repeat over and over. So that four, those four cycles happen one, two, three, four, and then it starts over one, two, three, four. The only way for the valves to do what they need to do is for that to happen at exactly half that speed, because we only want the intake valve to open during one of those two rotations. So if we yep. slow the valve timing down to half the speed, we have valve timing happening appropriately during its cycle and not during the second rotation. If it was going the same speed as the piston or as the crankshaft, we would get it the same. The second thing right. you want to think of is what's called locomotive motion. 
And when we look at a, uh, here, I'll do this because the screen's there. When yeah. we look at a, an old train moving down the track, you can see this like pivot to a circle, which was its wheel going around, coming from a piston moving back and forth on the steam engine. So a steam engine yeah. would go back and forth and that back and forth motion would connect to this circle on the wheel of the train that would go around and around. And that's what the piston is going up and down. It's got these same kind of architecture where it's going like this. Yeah. So you're, you're converting, my elbow is going in circles. You're converting my, linear motion into feet. rotational motion. Yeah, and, and we call that locomotion, I think. I'm pretty sure that's the technical term for turning straight lines into circles. Um, so pistons do that, and uh, but they're, they're up and down. So basically, this is going to be your piston. And on the first rotation around the first 180, it's you have an intake valve open and that's called the induction stroke and that's the suck as well so yeah. it'll induce air and then at the bottom of that stroke you close the valve and then the second cycle is the compression cycle so then the piston will start to rise again on that second 180 and somewhere near the top we start combustion so the spark plug is actually just a little device that starts a flame and that little spark will start the combustion event as it reaches top dead center and goes back down. And that's where we garner all the power for the tire and for to move the, the car. Uh, but once it reaches the bottom or near the bottom, we start to open the exhaust valve. So the two events of the intake valve and the exhaust valve, those two cycles are the beginning and the end of the four cycles, the first cycle and the fourth cycle. And once that valve opens, the piston can then rise and push all the extra gas out your exhaust pipe or to drive the turbo as well. Um, and that's the end of the fourth cycle. And then we, basically have an empty cylinder again, and we can open the intake valve on the first stroke again and suck air in as that piston comes back down for the uh, beginning of the four strokes again. So that's uh, uh, very simplistically. And, you know, there's some really good stuff. I saw someone has made a, uh, an acrylic piston or cylinder now. So there's all these YouTube videos of slow-mo that you can watch these cycles go on. And it's very, very interesting to see. Um, but when we talk about the nuances such as, you know, when, when do we want the pressure? And when we talk about what is the pressure and, and all that stuff, we'll get into that as we explain more about how an engine works. But basically it really is, if you thought about just air going through those four cycles, you'd just be pulling in air, compressing it, and then decompressing it, and then spitting it back out. Uh, and that's all like an engine turned off does. So if you're doing a compression test, you can see exactly how far it squishes it from basically ambient pressure to, to, to 100 PSI or 150 PSI, whatever the compression should be for your engine. And then it uh, decompresses it. When it's actually operating though, we add a lot of pressure to it through chemical means. And uh, a lot of people, I'm, I'm one of these people that I think, I don't know, I, I, I often, when I talk about these topics, I sort of project my own, my own learning and my, where I came from. So when I was a kid, I didn't believe fire was a chemical process. <laughs> I sort of thought it, it was a physical thing. You know, you got mm. sticks and you got fire and it's hot and flames are real. So I, I didn't look at it as a chemical thing. What I now know is that even when we're burning a match or anything like that, it's completely chemistry. It's, it has uh, very little to do with the physical world other than these effects that we see of heat. But if you really looked at what was happening to the wood, you would see oxygen uh, combining with carbon and things like that and, and yeah. actual combustion occurring, a chemical process. So well, uh, when we talk about the way an internal in combustion engine works, we have to sort of step back from the physical world and say, hey, you know what? This is truly, truly a, a chemistry set. It has, uh, it, it follows a lot more of that. And, and I always, I, I, I still fall into the problem of thinking of it too much physically 
when it really is to be thought of as a, a chemical reaction. And, and that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk about this. One one is, you know, you get so many questions about what, what tuning is and how tuning works and how some of the the aspects of tuning work or what, what they do is you, you realize in, in talking to people, talking through these questions is that there's, there's, there's engines kind of can seem like a black box where there's, there's some mystery or some magic that happens in there. So there's, it's, it, and it's, it's a complex process, but it's a simple process as well. If you break it down into those four individual pieces, and then, then once you understand how the engine works, and then you can understand what, what tuning an engine or setting an engine up to function does to improve its efficiency. And then, then that kind of it, again, like thinking of it in those, in those specific cycles or what, what like timing does to how the fuel is burned and how the flame front propagates and where, how the pressure is controlled through that, through that process. And it just kind of all makes, makes a bit more sense as so that's, that's the goal. That's what we're trying to achieve here today for sure. For sure. So, so maybe the, the first place to start, I think, is because it's because it's the interface that we all have with the engine, generally speaking, is the throttle. So in a, in a spark ignition engine, when you when you are opening the throttle, what is what is that actually doing? Uh, my answer for that would be that uh, I think you know, and I heard this from uh, I actually work for a really cool part time. I work at a place which is a school where we teach this stuff. And uh, it's called EFI 101. Uh, I figured I'd throw that out there. But Ben yeah. is my guru, sort of, Ben Strader. And he sort of uh, led me to the answer to that. And the throttle of an engine is really, I still think of it to this day, is the same as if I were to uh, throttle myself. So if I go like this and I cut off my air, I can't breathe as well. Uh, when we are, um, it's actually, and we also look at it as a load control device more than we do a, a RPM control device. A throttle is actually a device for controlling how much air gets into the engine and that's all it's doing. It's yep. uh, throttling, which is to means to choke. So if we choke something down, we're throttling it. So we're choking the air off. And even there's a circuit in old carburetors called a choke circuit where we can cut off even more air and give it extra fuel. But basically uh, a throttle is essentially choking off air to the engine. And the, the interesting point I'd like to point out about that is if I give an engine say 25% throttle in, in first year, uh, or third gear, uh, or even 15 or whatever I give it, say we give it 20% throttle and it goes down the road at 20 miles an hour. Some people are like, oh, look, the throttle is connected to the RPMs of the engine. Many people believe that the throttle and the RPM are connected. Th mm -hmm. That couldn't be further for the truth from the truth. Uh, it, it, the truth is that the throttle controls load um, because if you look at the same amount of throttle and you point that car up a steep hill, it'll decelerate. So if the throttle truly had some sort of control of, of engine speed, it would it would do that, but we can see with different loads. If you load the car up heavier, you're going to have to give it more gas. If you're towing a trailer, you have to push the throttle harder. So the throttle truly is a load control device more than it is an acceleration control device. It just happens that when we apply more um, less or more throttle, push down on the on the gas and, and open up that throttle, that we get uh, more and more power. More so it can accelerate. Yeah. And, and once you start to drive, I mean, you just, you, you learn that intuitively that, okay, well, the car is slowing down. I give it more throttle. I'm going up a hill. My car is slowing down. I'm going to apply more throttle. I'm slowing down and lifting off on the throttle. That the interesting yeah. thing about that is, you know, understanding that you're controlling the amount of air that goes into the engine, but there's a lot more that's going on in the engine to use that air that you have no control over. 
you you and the driver so you have no control over what the engine does with that air that you're sending into it sure That's, that is where kind of the magic happens or or the tuning comes in because in in the spark inject or spark ignition engine you're you're controlling the engine or the air so how much air the engine has to actually use but then the engine kind of decides how it uses that air how efficiently it uses it that this is where power and efficiency comes in but that's sure. that's all all basically in the hands of the engine and in the control mechanisms of, that the engine uses to to basically use that air that you're giving it yeah yeah i'll say you know we, we see that a lot and and i'll say your most direct connection to the engine is definitely only the throttle i mean we don't we don't sit there and say oh man i need more i got this lever over here to pull the intake cam open more at this rpm because i feel like it would spool better at this moment or something like that we don't have those when we're driving down the street so all we see is the throttle but there are all sorts of controls going on uh, and above that is that many of them are automatic. Many of them are things yeah. like what we what we want to talk about engines is there's always been a method of um, so-called metering air, which is just like it sounds, you know, throttle sounds like what it is. Meter sounds like what it is. When we meter something, we place a meter on it and measure it. So in some cases, we're metering air with a carburetor in a Venturi um, in a metering block, or in some cases, we're using uh, speed density where we're calculating the airflow off air pressure in the manifold and the revolutions of the engine and its its displacement. That's the simplest way to put that one. And then in another case, the one that's probably most common on OEMs these days is a mass airflow sensor where it actually is a sensor metering the air as it enters the engine. And then there's very little error unless you have leaks of some sort. But that's an automatic process, but just measuring it is just the beginning of it. So by measuring it and saying, hey, we're moving a lot of air at a low RPM, we can know what the timing requirements versus, oh, hang on a moment. <laughs> moving the same exact amount of air at a higher RPM means that you're under less load because if I'm in neutral and revving it, I'm not moving much air. But if I'm in fifth gear and revving it, I'm moving a lot more air. And the, the mass airflow sensor will see that. And then it can determine, hey, he's moving a lot of air at 1,000 RPMs versus, hey, he's not moving any air at 1,000 RPMs. And by metering that air, we can see what the computer uh, has been programmed to do with regard to both fuel and timing and cam timing and all the other aspects of its control. So let's let's stop there. So meter is, think of meter as measure. And so, mm -hmm. so again, you have control of the throttle. You have control of how much air is getting into the engine. The tool that the engine has that has to start with is using all of these sensors to then see, okay, well, how much air is coming in and then do whatever it needs to do. Uh, and as far as it, like cam position, crank position sensors and so forth, monitor the function of the engine. Okay, what is, what is the engine speed? Is everything happening when it's supposed to happen? And then like something like an O2 sensor, that's looking at the end result. You know, so, okay, now the exhaust gas that's coming out, okay, what is what is the contents of this exhaust gas? How much fuel was used? How much air is left? You know, am I running rich or lean? So it's, it's basically, okay. it's using all of these sensors to, to evaluate everything that's coming into the engine, everything that's going on in the engine, and then the end result of the exhaust gas. And it's from all of that data. So this is what builds up the tables. Uh, think of it like complicated spreadsheets for each one of these different variables that the, east, that, the, that the car is looking at. That's how it evaluates kind of what's going on in the engine and what it's doing. Yeah, um, and, and I, I would like to differentiate that into two, two, two distinct parts. One is um, a, a, a part where this engine is looking at sensors and making decisions about like, hey, it's moving this much air, so it must need this 
this is how long I should open the injector to deliver this much fuel so that the air fuel ratio is correct. Now that's that's a that's a single, not even a loop. That is just input and output. That's the computer yeah. looking and and saying, hey, he needs this much fuel, or oh, it's coming in and he's this much exhaust or, or this much ignition advance. We're gonna start the spark at this many degrees before top dead center of the piston, which we'll talk about later. But the other thing that I want to differentiate is there's a second set of controls which deals with feedback. So if yeah. I, uh, nothing's perfect. And when I say, hey, it needs this much milliseconds to get this much fuel to get a perfect air fuel ratio, um, the fuel pressure is always changing a little bit. The, um, there's, the sensor may not be accurate. There may be turbulence. There may be an intake leak that just formed a minute ago. So there is a set of sensors that actually it's their entire job is to create a feedback loop. So it'll actually, we tell it, hey, it's this much air, open the injector this long for a 14, seven to one air fuel ratio. The car then does that and it looks at the oxygen sensor and says, hey, you were wrong by 2%. We need to add 2% next time. And then you'll have a 14.7 to one air fuel ratio. So there are both these, um, the basic things, we can have all sorts of broken feedback sensors to get a car to basically run, but we can't have a broken mass airflow sensor. We, those initial, uh, the, the, the eyeglasses for the car have to be there for it to see the initial metering, uh, otherwise it won't run. But a lot of those feedback loops can be done without. I ran uh, early standalones had no knock sensor, for instance. So knock sensors are a feedback device, um, microphones, uh, oxygen mm-hmm. sensors. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to point out that a lot of times people, you know, you kind of want to see that it's a computer and it's taking in data, but it's also, uh, there's two types of data. One is for the feedback loop and one is for the initial data. Uh, and then on the other side of the computer, it has two, it has outputs. And so it has outputs for injectors and uh, coil packs and things like that. So we want to know that, uh, that there's inputs, there's outputs. And among the inputs, they're split up into closed loop feedback devices, as well as just initial devices like the metering. Sure. Well, and, and so when you're, when you're talking about con- those, those type of controls of, that, the, that the computer has on how the engine functions, that's that's where tuning happens, or, or what we call tuning. That's that is where that that control is applied, and, and how you then can like anybody that's has an engine running, like there there's a there's a set of, of conditions or a set of controls that's put in place that, that has basically dictates how that engine is going to function and work, and then as you tune it, then you're going in there and you're adjusting some of those parameters. You're you're telling the engine to work in a different way or use fuel in a different way or, or, or have a different target for how much fuel versus air it's, it's trying to get into the cylinder. That's where you make these adjustments to increase the power, which is effectively increasing, increasing the efficiency of the engine. So that's, that's what I would say tuning is. I don't, I don't know if you would agree with that, but, or, or want to add anything to that. Yeah, I'll say, I mean, it's uh, definitely, we want to get the most efficient uh, that we can, but I think a lot of times, you know, there is a little bit of, of inefficiency and that can affect things like there's a factor called brake specific fuel consumption, which is literally how many pounds of fuel or what mass of fuel does it take to make a horsepower? And there's a factor for different engines. But the truth is that factor is heavily influenced by a guy like me who says, hey, I want to run really rich when he's floored because I'm sick of seeing broken pistons. We got to richen this stuff up. So the, that, that factor may not be the most efficient as far as air fuel ratio, but it's the most efficient as far as how long, how much money overall do I spend on pistons in my car? <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. But well, not now, fuel efficient. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so Tasso and Dussex. Tasso, I know you have have started going down the road of, of trying to to take the reins of, of how the computer controls the engine. Dussex, have you have you decided to take these reins, or have you like me have just kind of like, all right, I I I, I don't really want to be in charge of this mess. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, people like Harvey are way more qualified. I'll drive Harvey content. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, so Tasso, when as you have started to get into tuning, I mean, what what was your thought process or how did you kind of think about what you were doing as you started like to try and start to go down this path? So I think it's important to say at this point too, I don't currently do my tuning on the car. Harvey does. And that's why it's been so successful and so reliable. Um, there, there was a period of time where, you know, I would start with a mostly there tune. Um, where I would piggyback, say, on something that was off the shelf or something that I had already paid for a tuner to do. And really all I was doing was adjustment. Um, or, you know, I, I learned enough about kind of the main parameters um, in terms of timing and the various timing adjustments and fueling and the various fueling adjustments that essentially all I was doing was checking to see if I was still in the air, like in the ballpark I wanted to be, and I could make little adjustments to try and stay in that ballpark. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, if you guys have heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect, I knew just enough to think that I knew what I was doing. Um, but there's a lot, a lot to it. And um, if nothing else, just the experience. Um, you know, when I go and bring my stuff, yeah, actually it is rocket science, <laughs> It is right? rocket science, yeah. So it, it even stuff, you know, where maybe eventually I understood the concepts and maybe eventually I could have worked my way towards like, you know, figuring out some like big fuel hole or something like that. You know, a guy with the experience like Harvey doesn't have to like guess wrong a bunch of times before he can get it right because he has such a, you know, such a, a deep slideshow in his head of things that he's done successfully in the past. He's got a deeper understanding of the concepts. So, so that's where ultimately I broke down and I was like, man, this is one of those things where like, I should really have someone who really knows what they're doing, doing this, right? Like I, I still... I'll keep an eye on things. I don't send every one of my data logs after a race to Harvey, but if there's something where I'm like, dude, I don't know what's going on here. Can you figure this out? Um, I think I've, I've, all... I've also helped you learn to read your own data logs a little yeah. bit. And, and that's really helpful. But I want to say you should give yourself more credit because you're playing with stuff that I don't like to play with. You've done a great job setting up your own anti-lag and that is so dangerous. <laughs> Good job. Well, I'm, not, I'm not even using the full anti-lag, but, but even, you know, stuff, you know, figuring out, for example, um, you know, ignition retard, launch control, kind of stuff like that, right? So it's it's having to to essentially when I give a certain number of activation parameters, which for me are a maximum road speed of I think like five miles an hour, so it doesn't accidentally do this while I'm driving. Uh, clutch switch and in a throttle position, um, my ECU will go into a different set of maps, and it'll essentially it'll retard the timing so much um, based on RPM. So it'll still if their timing started out retarded it would never build RPM to my launch control RPM. So as it builds, it starts to pull more and more timing until it's essentially, it's firing during the exhaust stroke and it's adding a bunch of fuel. Um, and so using those, then it's, it's not firing anymore to power the motor. So the RPM will continue to climb, but it's still creating a lot of energy in the exhaust to build boosts on the line. So I had, I had to go through some amount of, you know, basic understanding of what was going on to figure that out. If I were to bring it to, um, you know, and let Harvey go to town with it, 
or, you know, any number of, you know, real good, you know, motorsports level tuners, I'm sure they could do it better. Right. <laughs> but at least it's functional, right? I, I can There's build always 20 PSI. I can build 20 PSI on the line, which is more than even my base pressure is. Um, so I actually have to be careful. It'll sit there and continue I, to build. I, I really don't think so. I think that a guy like you, once you get, you know, cause definitely launch control on different surfaces is going to be different. It's just like, if you hate, the DHR tire on a mountain bike or something like that, you know, it's your own setup and your own tire pressure. And, and all those things are very, they change enough that I think a guy like you who gets a handle on that can really, unless you have your tuner with you at the, at the race, you know, you guys are doing so much off-road and even between different stages, the, it changes, you know, if you use the same stage twice, the surface might change enough that you may need to tweak the launch control or the anti-lag. And I think that someone like you that knows what he's doing can start to, to really dial in that part of it. But, you know, again, when you're thinking about racing, I doubt you're worried about how well the anti-lag's working. Uh, no. in no, right. And that's, that's an important thing too, is um, I mean, it's the mental side of this whole thing. Like if nothing else, it's hard to uh, overstate how important it is to have faith in your tune so that you're not mm. worried about it the whole time you're driving. Right. So, because, you know, I appreciate, you know, that you're saying I can figure this stuff out, but b- because you've done it and it's proved out on a dyno and you, there are a certain number of safeties in place, I feel comfortable going out there and not thinking about, you know, while I'm mid run, I'm not thinking about, Oh man, does that feel like it's a little bit, you know, you know, off timing from what it should be or something like that, because that allows me then to focus on the driving side. So, so right. Yeah. It's having that, having that faith in your tune is something that's really important. And that comes from having good quality stuff to work with right off the bat. Uh, a good tune is a foundation. Right. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and so I, I want to just back up maybe a half a step and, and just kind of underline a little bit of what was talked about here in terms of, of like, uh, Tasso, you mentioned data logs or, or just data in general, which is, you know, like we talked about all the sensors that the ECU is using to look at everything that's going on in the engine. It's, it's constantly storing all of that information or, or it can store that information. And so this is, if you hear people talk about data logs, this is what a data log is. It, and and picking, picking the parameters is generally speaking, picking either a behavior or a sensor that the ECU is looking at and then recording all of that information at whatever the rate that the ECU looks at it at, and then it can spit that information out into a, a log or a spreadsheet. So like, you know, Tasso, you're talking about um, timing, you know, retarding timing. So you could, you could look at a log for the timing of the, of the engine, and it will, it will give you this, this massive spreadsheet and then you can overlay that with other data, like, like uh, fueling or spark or load or throttle position. And you, you can basically use that to build this spreadsheet that gives you in like this, this very, like uh, taking a lot of samples uh, per second uh, information of exactly what is going on in the engine. And so it's, it, that is kind of like the foundational tool. If you really want to start looking at what the engine is doing is, is you, you decide, okay, well, these are the parameters or these are the functions that I want to know about or watch. And then you, you can create, create a, a log that says, okay, well, well, give me all of the information about these, these parameters whenever I ask for it. And so that's, that's where the, the log is generated. And then, so like what you're saying, when, when you're racing, you could record the engine's behavior during a run, then you can look at the log after the run and 
like if you if there was like say like you're saying like it felt like my my on throttle response like coming out of corners was a little bit off let's look at the logs and see if i can see where something dips where something was maybe not what it should be and then then you can if you wanted to pursue it pursue it you could yeah i think uh, if I could jump in just a quick thing here yeah. that like helped me figure out or like as a, one of my earliest, cause when I learn stuff, I make like little breakthroughs that make the next step start to make more sense. And so one of those earliest breakthroughs was all a data log is, is a data point logged over time. So that's all it is. And whether that data point is something a sensor is reading or whether it's a calculation that the ECU is doing and putting out. All it is is that data point over a timestamp. And so then when you start comparing multiple data points um, that are synced up on a timestamp, then you can see, okay, I can see here in the run where I went to a hundred percent throttle position. I saw my you know timing reacts to the tip in and then you know fall into this other map. And you know, so it's one of the earliest things for me to like basically understand is it's just a couple of data points over time and it's how they interact with each other as they're synced up, that's the magic of a data log, right? Yep. And so that's, um, you know, I, you're right. Like the data log is one of the more important things for being able to focus on a run because I know I've built within my ECU uh, parameters, hundred percent throttle, it'll log for 10 seconds, unless it sees another hundred percent throttle, then it'll restart that clock for 10 more seconds. Um, so for my racing that covers an entire race run, but then 10 seconds after the finish line, when I rolled off, it cuts off. So automatically, I don't even have to flip a log switch or something like that. I know my ECU is going to catch my whole run on the data points that I've selected at the resolution that I've selected. And so then I don't have to think about it during the run. When I'm done with the run, I can pull up a data log and I can look at what these data points and how they're interacting with each other. And so that's, that's the magic of data logging. And it's, it's really valuable. Yeah. Oh Yeah. And, and I would say, like, if you're, if you somebody that's listening to this wants to get into tuning and try and figure out how they can make adjustments, the, the starting point is to not touch anything, but look at, look at these data logs, figure out what, what pieces of data you want to look at, and then just start recording a lot of data. And, and the looking, looking at these data points, like you said, Tasso, and just try and figure out, okay, how are these related? Why, you know, what, what happens when I go to wide open throttle? What does, what do these other parameters do? And then once you that once you kind of get a sense of what you're looking at or what to look at and, and can get a sense of the story that the data log is telling you, then that's that's where you're kind of building up the foundational understanding of, of what is going on in the engine at any, in any given moment. Yeah. Can I step in on the data log? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things you want to know, too, is that data logs aren't just the sensors and they incorporate things like vehicle speed, RPM, time. Um, but they are also calculated uh, functions of the engine that it uses for calculations on the maps that I make. So a lot of times we'll have, you know, the mass airflow sensor will tell you how many grams of air are coming in per second um, of airflow. And then it'll, it'll actually break that into uh, a grams in each cylinder on a calculation inside the computer. And you don't have to figure that out from your data log, just from the mass airflow data. You can actually log that data already calculated and it makes it immensely easy when you look at the maps that are set up and then you realize like if you just peruse maps here's another tip for beginning people trying to understand tuning is that you can go through the software that has all the different maps and you can look at the axes of the tables and you can say oh this one's set up rpm versus throttle position 
and I'm going to log that and see where I was. And you sure enough, you'll see all the data. If I'm at 75% throttle and 4,000 RPMs, and I look at my uh, boost control duty on some of these computers, I'll see that in reality, it is exactly what's in the table that I programmed. So these logs can look at these, these parameters and I can go back from the log and reference what's happening in that tuning software. And then even like uh, Tasso is running the Haltech computer uh, because it's a race car and it's awesome. And his logs, you can actually drag a line over the logs and it'll actually put a pointer in the map and you can tab between tables. Like I can see where I was on the fuel table and literally tab right over the timing table and see where I was there and be like, oh yeah, that looks good, that looks good. And it, uh, these tools, the data logs can be very powerful depending on the software they're interfacing with as well. For sure. And to build on that too, if you have a set of parameters and like you're saying, if I have, for in your example, this RPM, this auto position, I should be at this boost duty. And then you see a log records it being something else. And you're like, well, that's not matching up. Then you can start looking for, okay, well, what caused that? You know, maybe there's a correction table. Maybe there's a mechanical failure. There's any number of things, right? And so that, that's the beginning of your, your sleuthing process to figuring out where something might be going wrong too. Yeah, or, there, or there's some kind of overlapping function that you have to kind of figure out if, if there's something else that's affecting it, it, so that you're not seeing the result that you thought you were. Yeah, and, and even though I, I mean, even with tuning live, which is what I try to do as much as possible, it seems to save a lot of time versus waiting for flashing. We're always recording each pull and then we always review them in between pulls just so that we can look at things that maybe they're not important, but we want to be sure they're stable, whether it's fuel pressure or something like that. We're not looking at fuel pressure when we're tuning to say, hey, I need to turn it up or turn it down. We sort of start that, you know, we set that up before the dyno. But when we're looking at it on the dyno, we might glance at it as we raise boost to make sure it's not falling down. So we'll log parameters that have absolutely nothing to do with anything other than safety, exhaust gas temperatures, similar to that. Oil pressure, sure. if that's uh, something you can watch too uh, on logs. Crankcase pressure. pressure. <laughs> Crankcase yeah. pressure. Yay. We've we done a whole video on that, in fact. Yeah. That's so heroic. <laughs> well, and, and so I, I want to just, I, I don't want to get into a lot of the minutiae of, of tuning. I, I think to this point, it's important to kind of paint the picture of like, what what is the computer doing? Because it is a computer for, for any modern car that, that's controlling everything. What is the computer doing? What is it working with? But I want to talk about just a little bit about the, the main controls that you have as a tuner to try and change the efficiency of the engine, which, I mean, I in my thinking of it, the two parameters, the two main parameters are fueling and timing and yeah. what those do. But I, I mean, would you agree that those are the two main parameters or is there, yes. is there something else? Despite the fact that we work on turbocharged cars here a lot, those are really the two main parameters. Uh, things like boost and, and cam positions, that's all extraneous in my mind. And it, it's all like icing on the cake. But the two main parameters that we're going to talk about today, and especially to simplify this for beginners, is we, we, we should imagine our model is a normally aspirated engine with no boost at all. And even when we talk about boosted engines, it's, you know, the, the boost portion of it adds complications that we probably shouldn't. Uh, dwell on today because the basics dwell. are what we want to understand. Dwell, dwell time, yes. No, sorry, <laughs> yeah. sorry, no. Puns, I don't want to get complicated. Puns. Yes. So yeah, so that, yeah, th so if we want to talk about those two parameters being ignition advance and fuel, let's uh, let's start with the easy one, which I think let's is start, fuel. And, and and what's what's really interesting is I remember a time, and this was this was way, way back in probably the mid 2000s when, when people were first kind of trying to 
to tune their cars, or at least in the Subaru community, were first trying to tune their cars, where there was a lot of emphasis put on fueling and manipulating fueling and changing fueling. Um, there was just, that was, that was kind of what everybody's yeah. dominant mindset was. Is, but it, I, I would say, or would you say it's safe to say that fueling is not now the dominant tool for tuning? It, it's changed. I would say that the, it, it had that appearance. And I believe that things like the, uh, we, we had all these math translators and these piggybacks that would get in and uh, alter the airflow maps and you would lean out your car, but people weren't monitoring their ignition advance. Again, when you're looking at the intake, uh, the mass airflow sensor, it not only, it calculates airflow, it's not calculating the air fuel ratio. So as people were leaning out these cars, the unintended effect was obviously to tell the car, hey, you're moving less air. When a car sees that a computer it almost invariably thinks there's less load and in those timing maps as you see less and less load occur we're always going to see more and more timing so i think that even though the focus was fuel it's only because people could only measure air fuel ratios they weren't looking at yeah. their ecu well and and it's it's kind of counterintuitive because like at, at the time and, and again this is this is back kind of for us here in the states with supers kind of it's in its infancy a bit but the thought SAFC, was, right well, that or, or, or just like, geez, like even, even the people that were using something like a, a UTEC to actually get in and, and try and get some kind of control of the ECU, it, all the discussion, like the, the, the people that were tuning the cars, it was all around fueling. And, and the thought was, well, hey, just like you said, kind of, you want to lean the fueling out and that's how you make power. But that's, I mean, it, and even to say that now, it, it seems counterintuitive. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to put less fuel into the engine to make more power, but that was, that was the thought. Um, I, I, and I don't, because I think that the, the current, that, that, that you would, you'd probably not agree with that as being the key, but I, I, I and I don't want to dwell too much on it to, because I don't want to take the chance that somebody will, will kind of latch on to that and think, okay, again, okay, you've got to lean the fueling out to make power, but maybe could you just touch on maybe what the mindset was or that kind of, that was the thought, and now what? What kind of the counterpoint to that is? Oh well, let's let's set the landscape for that thought because the, the truth is that when we're talking about the combustion process, we're talking it's chemistry, and uh, when we talk about the chemistry, we need to talk about what is the the perfect chemistry, which is what we call lambda in in combustion. So if I have um, essentially one atom of oxygen and and uh, two of hydrogen, and I and there's combustion in the in the vicinity, I'll end up with water, and that's like perfect combustion. Hooray, there's, oops, sorry. That's okay. Yeah, so I'll say, you know, at that point you're like, hooray, this is, uh, this is great. I have a perfect relationship and they match and there's no leftover oxygen, which would be running too lean. And there's no leftover hydrocarbons, which is where the hydrogen would come from is hydrogen and carbon mixed together. So when we have a perfect match, we end up with nothing but combustion and CO2 and water. And that is the most perfect combustion with regard to hydrocarbons, which is gasoline, ethanol, methanol, all and these to, common fuels. And to just kind of put that in a nutshell, if you have the exact right amount of fuel and the exact right amount of air and you burn them, you have nothing less left over except for, for, for water. CO2 and, and water. Yeah, and CO2 some, and water. which are still, I mean, CO2 is a greenhouse gas, but these are the least harmful gases we can get from combustion in the internal combustion engine. So it's right. considered good um, when we get that reaction. Otherwise we end up with things, uh, some harmful, uh, deposits, you know, HCs and such, uh, you know, hydrocarbons that are even more damaging than CO2. But anyway, let's ignore that because what yeah. we're trying to talk about is the, this, the air this fuel perfect, ratio. perfect combustion. So with nothing so, left over. And then, so like you said, lean means that you have more air left over 
so that mm -hmm. you could have burned more fuel if you had it. And then rich means you have more fuel left over. So you, you would have needed more air in the cylinder to actually burn all the fuel that you had. Yeah. And then, so that's like right up the middle. We've got the yep. right amount of one side, right amount of the other. Yep. When we actually go though into power, we want to go towards the rich side, which is too much fuel. And that's always true. So when we're putting out a lot of power, we're trying to protect metal components with, uh, from this power generation and all the heat created with extra cooling. And that's internal. You know, we use uh, inside the engine, we have a cooling system with, that uses coolant, but inside the cylinder, we need some extra cooling to not melt pistons and valves. So usually larger, normally aspirated engines, you'll richen up a certain amount and it's considered like 12.5 to one air fuel ratio to 13 to one. We're not doing that for a chemical reason of any sort. In fact, that's probably uh, having a bad effect on the remaining particles coming out of the car, but it's necessary to not melt the pistons. So uh, when we get into smaller and smaller engines that are turbocharged, there's a lot more heat involved. So it's typical to richen them up even more. And even from the factory, a Subaru is in the 10 to one range, 10, five to one, 10, six. Uh, it's still considered safe by a guy like me to take that and put it at 11 to one. But if we can take it leaner and leaner, we might see a very small increase in power However, the, the increase isn't big enough for, for a guy like me to want to risk the uh, components because even on a little piston engine, if I tried to run it uh, over here, kind of where I would do a normally aspirated engine, I might start melting things. So we, we, yeah. we make them rich, a little extra rich. So it's so interesting that's, because the, that's, the idea, that's the point. That's what was missing. That's what we didn't know at the beginning when, yeah. we, when everybody started going down this path is that. There, there's a purpose to running an engine rich, which is heat management that has nothing to do with power, but it has a lot to do with reliability. But that's, that's mm -hmm. what was missing. It's like, well, hey, well, because, and, and just to say for people like, was it 14, 14.5, 14.7 is stoichiometric? Sure. Yeah. Somewhere around there. I so, so, so 12 to one is rich. Uh, 10 to one is more rich. 14.7 is, is kind of like exactly in the middle. And then if it was going to be lean, it would be the AFR that you'd see air fuel ratio uh, that you'd see would be higher than 14.7. Yeah. And this is all with gasoline with gasoline. Yeah. 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 So, but it's, it's that, it's that understanding that like the fuel is, is actually serving two purposes in the engine. One is to make power, but the other one is to control heat and to keep everything working mm -hmm. reliably yeah. in, in their, in their heat range. But that's what, that's kind of what was, was missing way back in the day. So now we don't really tinker with fuel as much because we know, we know that there's like, kind of like what you were saying, there's safe limits. And so that's where sure. now what fueling has changed from is instead of trying to, trying to manipulate that air fuel ratio to make power, you kind of set it to a target. You, you, you know, what's safe, you know, what's reliable. And you want to just keep it there. You want to maintain it. You don't want to manipulate it. You don't want it going all over the place. Yeah. And I, I think even more importantly is the distinction that, uh, that stoic is truly the only rich and lean that, that, that is scientifically true. You can only be stoic or rich stoic or lean of stoic, but we commonly, and all of us do this, when we talk about rich and lean in performance cars, we're not talking about that. We're saying, hey, you've got a turbo car, so you're running at 12 to one, you're too lean. You're not mm. lean. You're not actually lean chemically at all. You're still rich, right. but you are lean of 11 to one, which is probably the where you want to be on gasoline on a right. Subaru with boost somewhere around there. I mean, 11.5 is some tuners do that. But if you're at 12.5 to one, in my opinion, you're too lean, but you're not even lean. That's the that's where it's, all this confusion comes You're in. leaner than you want to be, but it's from a heat management standpoint, not from a chemical standpoint. 
Yeah. And I see a lot of people butt heads on this because they come to one guy will come into the room with the understanding of what stoic truly is. And the other guy will not understand well. And he'll be saying, oh, you're lean. And it's still 13 to one, but it's a turbo Subaru riding 30 pounds of boost and on gasoline. So it's not, it is lean and they're both right. (laughs) Yes. It, and that's, I mean, having, having that understanding and, and the, the, boy, it, it like, again, looking at data logs and stuff like that, this is where like this, this is kind of one of the progressions that, that the tuners have gone through in the past 15, 20 years is, is learning more and more detail about how the engine works, learning more and more detail about why the OEs set up the computer and the engine to work a certain way and, and realizing, okay, well, actually when they're, when they're trying to hold this target that that we would consider like way richer than it should be like, realizing, oh, there's actually a really, really good reason for that. I, I actually do not want to touch this. So that's that's kind of one of the early transitions of tuning, especially in the Subaru community over here, was realizing, like, leave fueling alone. In fact, like, set it as a target and stop messing with it because that's why we're having all of these problems. And then they move to the other option, which is timing. Sure. Perfect, perfect timing, Harvey. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Perfect so, timing is always the key to the best power and the best tune. Uh, yes. Fueling, again, fueling is sort of a, uh, uh, we can affect, I think we talked about this earlier, is that us tuners have the ability to affect the brake specific fuel consumption of your engine just by whimsy. We can literally say, I don't like running 11.5 to 1, and I've seen enough of this engine brake that I'm going to run this one at 11.2. You're literally changing the BSFC, which is how many, right. how much mass per uh how much mass it takes to make a horsepower you're changing that as a decision just an arbitrary decision because of your knowledge or your wisdom you're not using necessarily the dyno to tell you what it is although i do also you know there's times when we're like man we're so close maybe i'll lean it out a little bit and see if i get a little power Hmm. so truly the dyno is the cool thing and i want to go i want to say something really quickly about that and the, the truth is it's really nice to see all this stuff and calculate it, but you know, I would never take a tea kettle and be like, Ooh, I have to put exactly 70 ounces of water in it. And then I have to set my timer for 15 minutes because of that. And then I'll set my temperature on the stovetop to this. It would be similar to tuning where I could calculate exactly how long it'll take to boil my tea. But the truth is we have the stove and we can just listen. The dyno is just like that. The dyno is a feedback device where we can see like, Hey, is this the right fuel or is this the right timing? And you can do it safely without encountering things like detonation. You can actually push parameters around and see if it makes sense. And a lot of times it makes sense counterintuitively. So the dyno is wonderful because some cars, even though you've tuned a hundred of this engine, you may pull fuel out or you may add a degree of timing. And this one may have a different piston shape that has a different combustion chamber design due to it. And it might like more timing or less timing than everyone you've ever tuned. So the dyno, I don't sit here and say, hey, what CC is your combustion chamber? And when, what angle is the, is the crank at it when I'm, when I'm um, at peak cylinder pressure? Although I can't measure that here, but we don't, we don't look at that or try to calculate that stuff using the dyno. But yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the well, idea. Th- that is, when that is actually a key concept, which is as, as you're tuning a car, as you're changing the running parameters of the car, the changes that you make, you don't know if they're going to, to make an improvement or not make an improvement until you can then test them, collect more data and decide, okay, this change was an improvement or this change was not an improvement. 
and then and then build on that in that process. You 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 cannot kind of what you're saying is like you can't make a cake by just taking all the ingredients, pouring them in a bowl, and putting it in the oven. There's other steps there, and and you have to you have to know that okay, what I what I just did, this works or this doesn't, and that's where mm-hmm. the dyno comes in. Yeah. Yeah, the dyno is the oven itself. It, it actually, yeah. it's how we turn up and down the heat and uh, get results. And I think, you know, that's the, something that, that people, a lot of people don't get is, yeah, we're measuring horsepower, but we're also measuring so many other parameters. And the, the truth is the only way to actually get a reading of horsepower in a car is probably, well, the, my favorite way and my, the safest way and the most stable way, it's not affected by wind or, or inclines or road surface, is the dyno. So the dyno actually tells us horsepower and there are some, I guess, software programs that attempt to infer horsepower from calculations like change in speed and knowing the car's weight. But the dyno is infallible. And, and often a lot of the, the calculated data that I've seen from spreadsheet horsepower has very counter, uh, well, incorrect data. And so it, it doesn't work well. And, and with, with this, there's no question that we're measuring horsepower and seeing either and rising horsepower or lowering of power. And the key is that it's a controlled environment. The, yeah, the dyno is a controlled environment. The, the dyno is always where it is. The room, the dyno is always in the same room, and and from one pole to the next, everything is identical. And you can make things yeah. as close to identical as possible. Whereas in the real world, well, things happen in the real world. And and if you're oh, yeah. a mile down the road, two miles down the road, going, you know, here you're in Kansas, you're in California. There's a lot of variables that happen in the real world. That the significance of the dyno is that you're collecting data in a controlled environment. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, here's another one is one of those controls is time. So we can control, I can tell my dyno that I want it to take 12 seconds to get through a pull on a Subaru. And that doesn't matter if it's making 300 or 800 horsepower. And what that allows me to do is run a low boost pull on the same engine and make 350 and see the data and then overlay it with another graph from when I turned the boost up. And the RPMs, because the dyno takes 20 or whatever I told it to say 12 seconds for each pull, I can lay that data over itself perfectly and analyze what the differences are, as opposed to if I was out on the road and I did one pull at 350 horsepower, it might take 12 seconds. And then when I raised it to 800, it would take much less uh, than 12 seconds to go through. So overlaying that data would be very difficult and seeing what the differences were like, oh, weird at this point, you you could still do it, but you'd have to be dragging one graph over the other graph as you check different RPMs. Um, The dyno doesn't, it gets rid of that, that sort of thing. We can actually compare things much more stably. It's it's an apples to apples. It's 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 much easier to control the same data points or compare the same data points. Yeah. Yeah, Especially that time. Yeah. All right. So, so let's, let's talk about timing because that's, I, I think, even, even from talking to some people, there's still some mystery as far as what timing is, what it does, why you would even want to 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 tinker with it if you're tuning a car. Sure. So so maybe let's 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 talk talk about that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, basically, let's start back with the the um the end of the first stroke I, or or the or the second stroke. So we're we're the first stroke was intake. So it's it's the intake valve is open and then both valves close and then yeah. we're compressing the gases. For the power stroke and that's what we're talking about is timing because the timing refers to how many degrees before or after top dead center we start the spark event uh, how what at what exact point do we tell the coil to fire in the combustion process and usually we have this uh the intake valve is opened and what we've sucked in isn't just air it's air and fuel and now we're actually priming it for uh an expansion of gas to burn and we're compressing this pocket of gas that's mixed with fuel and air 
And then at the correct moment, we start a flame. And then as, as the piston starts to come down, and you can remember that it's a locomotion. So as it's coming down, it's kind of sweeping around like that, like my elbow. Mm -hmm. So as it starts to come down, we want it to be pushing in a way that makes that circle go around. Now think about this. If you're at top dead center and the peak of pressure is occurring then, all the force is in a straight line. The crank has its own little uh, kind of throw or an eccentric. The crank where the where is a circle, but there's an eccentric point where the rod attaches, and that's what makes it kind of go in this bigger circle. Right. So if, if you look at from the center of the crank to that point where the rod attaches and it goes around, you have essentially an angle. And, and that affects how it's pushing that circle, which is the crankshaft. So if I'm pushing it straight up and down, I am not pushing it, has it in nowhere a circle to go. at all. And if I'm pushing it once it's at the bottom dead center, that's not going to push that circle in a circle at all. But if I'm pushing it when it's kind of like this, that's when that force translates to good, good force through the stroke. So basically at the top dead center, when I start this flame, it starts to burn and that burn is pushing it down. And we want that angle to be pushing that circle around. And that's what makes good power. And the point at which I start that flame, if I start it too late, it's already too far or it's already started to expand the gases. And we already know that um, it's going to be, this is going to be a cool one, which is the, the main thing that I've thought about when we talk about this whole thing is that it's chemistry. So what we're doing is we're taking this gas and we're compressing it. And then we're using a chemical reaction to expand this gas. So by starting that flame at the right time, we can garner the most energy in that from that circle and from that whole process. We're not looking for the peak pressure to push that thing. We're looking for the most push throughout that cycle when it can push that circle in a circle. So if I just push really hard at one point, but not after that, that's not as much energy as if I'm pushing evenly and smoothly through that whole arc. If I can push that whole arc of the crank, I get more power at the tire. It may feel much stronger, even if the peak pressure was lower, because if the peak pressure was lower, but only lasted for like five degrees of that arc, it's it doesn't feel like it's pushing you as much as if it was say that's a 10 pound press for five degrees, it wouldn't feel anywhere near a five degree, a five, a five pound press that lasted for 40 degrees because that five pounds over 40 degrees is, is much more power force over time than 10 pounds over five degrees. Um, so with combustion, what we want to keep in mind is it's pushing and, and the flame is actually burning in a controlled way that creates pressure. Um, and, when and, we get, and, and the key yeah. point is that it takes time. Yeah. So, so, so like what timing effectively is just in, in a nutshell is when the spark plug fires to start, to start the combustion event. And so what you're talking about with timing is when, when are you going to start everything off? When, when are you going to ignite the air fuel mixture to get it to start to burn? But, but the key thing that you have to remember is that burn event, it takes time. So yes. this is, and I'm, I'm going to say this really quick and, and I think we should move on because I, this is a, this is in and of itself a deep topic. But, but detonation or, or pre-ignition, which are two different things, but that's basically when the, either the air-fuel mixture ignites not when you want it to, not with the spark plug, that's pre-ignition, or mm -hmm. it happens all at once, detonation. So I think a lot of people, when they think about even how a spark ignition engine works, is they think that it works off of, well, everything, when, when I ignite that air-fuel mixture, it just happens all at once, and that's it. But that is not what happens, that the, the flame kernel starts in the center and then it moves out and you gradually burn all of that air and that fuel. And it's that mm -hmm. time that the combustion event takes. That's what you're talking about, Harvey, as far as pushing the piston down for a longer and longer amount of time. Yes. And so, so the ideal is, is that you can push that piston 
like apply that force to the piston as long as possible. And that's, that's what happens when you, when you get the timing right, when you get that combustion event just right. That's where, you get, that's where you're making the most power. And that's also where you're, you're, the engine is operating most efficiently. Now, now the kicker, because again, I don't want to dwell on pre-ignition or detonation, but the kicker is the engine is not always spinning at the same speed unless you have mm-hmm. a CVT, but we don't like CVTs. So, so the engine is spinning at a constantly different speed. So what effect does that have on timing? Well, yeah. So, I mean, if I'm starting a flame that happens at the same rate and the event is taking shorter and shorter, then I have to start the spark earlier and earlier to get the pressure to occur at the same angle to get the same sort of the optimum power. Um, Another thing that should be noted is that that flame speed changes with pressure and is that the size of that combustion chamber is changing as the pistons moving up and down. All these things are coming into play at once. So it's, it's an intricate dance of pressure, flame speed, and uh and and um and uh volume and yeah. so as we push this piston down uh as the pressure changes the flame speed does as well uh there are engines that spin so fast that the flame can't catch the piston some motorcycles with like incredibly high red lines if you run too low of an octane the flame won't even catch the piston that's how fast the piston's moving so then wow. you don't make any power <laughs> uh, in certain yeah. cases you know with certain the, amount of timing or the, the engine can actually spin fast enough that that you cannot get the the burn to, to occur quick enough to keep pushing the piston down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it depends on the fuel you're using uh, as to whether it can keep up with that. And it also, I mean, you know, and then, and then there's another special topic I'll mention quickly, and that is that diesels generally do uh, somewhat kind of work on detonation. That's yep. why they're so beefy. But it, most internal combustion, such as gasoline or ethanol or methanol, does not. Um, and uh, yeah, you want, I'll go back to timing because I think that's the, the main idea is that we want to talk about how timing works. And so we've talked about like, hey, that's at the, the peak pressure, but that changes with different amounts of air in the cylinder as to what the best timing is. It also changes with what you're trying to achieve because often we're trying to achieve uh, good vehicle mileage and that can't be tested on the dyno, but different amounts of timing can affect mileage and efficiency. Um, but most of what people talk about when they talk about timing is a wide open throttle and where mm-hmm. we're just 100% throttle and sweeping through the RPMs to redline and, um, uh, you know, giving well, a, a landscape of sort of how that works. Is, and, is and the difficult thing with timing is it's not like fuel where, where you can kind of figure out what the fuel target is and try and just maintain that target. Timing is always changing. It depends, it depends on how fast the engine is spinning and, and, and what your throttle is. It's, it's, uh. And this is this might be one of the reasons why people were slow to adopt looking at timing when they were tuning the car versus fueling, is that there's 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 a lot going on. It's a it's a it's a very it's a highly variable table, and and it's there's not like you can't just say I need 16 degrees you know before top dead center. That's that's going to be sure. a number. Like there's going to be one little specific point where 16 degrees is going to be it. But just like it, it's going to be all over the place, and so it, it's it's a it's a harder thing to hit because that target is always moving. Yeah, yeah, and I'll say huh, the other thing is, you know, we, we we can talk about you know combustion chamber design, we can talk about fuels used, but basically, uh, timing varies with how close the molecules are to each other inside that cylinder. So if I have molecules that are close together, the flame will jump from molecule to molecule faster than if they're farther apart. So we want to sure. give it less advanced because that flame will propagate faster and that's again the the function of pressure um uh, so this is where it's harder 
but this is this is where working with an experienced tuner comes in because like as you spend the time as you as you try things as you as you pull in all of the data and, and kind of get a sense for what what your target is how things work where where you want to where you want the timing to be and and see what happens as you manipulate the timing that's where that's where you'd start you know or or get uh, better at developing an effective map a reliable map sure uh, and inconsistent engine behavior it's not easy um, but that is but that is where where tuning comes in yeah and i'll say this is you know this is the main function of the dyno for me is to to derive what the correct ignition advance is you you can actually use the dyno and there's a concept on uh, the internet i'll have you put up a slide called mbt which is um, minimum best timing for peak torque um and uh I, I'm not sure what it actually stands for. That's what I've. That's one of the. That's one of the things I've heard it stands for. It's MBT, but I call it minimum best timing. And mm -hmm. basically, as I, uh, if I'm way under advanced, if I give an engine one degree, it'll pick up immense power. And then as I approach its uh, its optimum timing, it'll stop picking up power. So a lot of people used to do this on the road with distributors, myself included, shamedly. And, and I would just turn the distributor until I heard the car pinging. And this was an old Barracuda, so it wouldn't hurt it. Or, yeah, it kind of probably would over time, but I would hear that. that I would back it off. I would turn it back like 10, five degrees or so. But I would do this in the hot Oklahoma sun. And it would it would depend on the how hot it was outside and where I got fuel. And um, it was a lot of fun to derive timing on the street. But I had no idea how much power I would gain or anything like that. But by doing it on the dyno, I can put it in a safe place by basically taking the ignition advance and setting it to zero degrees or five or whatever I think is appropriate yeah. as a beginning. And but that, something and that I certainly know is low and safe. And, and then I can the add cool one thing. at a time. That's, that's the lure with timing is you actually can get, if you have the ability to measure in a controlled environment, especially if you have the ability to measure what's going on with timing, you can actually get really immediate feedback as far as whether you're moving in the right direction or not. Oh for, yeah, for a given condition, and that's, I think once once that was figured out, that's where everybody realized, okay, well this this fueling thing, that's this is this is crazy, this is this is actually what we want to be manipulating with because you get way better uh, information about the change that you're making, and then you can you can actually make that change, know that you're getting to the point where you're making power, but do so actually in a in a much more repeatable and reliable way versus trying to play with fueling because it just that that would it just never worked quite right and for for a myriad of reasons but yeah the timing is that that kind of was that was that was the special sauce when people figured that out yeah i think i mean i think this is you know you're, you're talking about the aftermarket in the import community but the reality is um factory engineers and performance people they, and people in racing we already they knew, knew this it they knew it it just <laughs> it, it had to, it had to trickle down. It had to trickle down to uh, to us here. Yeah, and I, I think it was really the market. You know, you saw all these little devices you could plug in. None of them said timing on them. So it was it, that was just like a topical thing. But I think even even among my friends and people who were you know ex gearheads that were working with V8s and carburation and distributors, we already knew that the the, the magic was in the timing. I just, well, you know, I'll say I wasn't sure about well, that's these why, new That's where you're, you're, you're moving the distributor around. I mean, you, that's what well, you're doing when you're moving the distributor. Also, yeah, I think, yeah. right, if I, and this is, I mean, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this and how this proves out. I think a lot of the time when we talked about fueling and um, 
like an air fuel ratio for that you can get away with on an old carbureted V8 timing similarly you can get away with more because like the max base timing for like a V8 you can you can actually advance and then you can start to see power drop before you get really bad pre-ignition events so you can uh, even on a dyno if you were going to be that scientific about it back in the day you could find that max base and then you would you would have um, room to work with still if you overshot it and you could come back I think, and this is where I'm curious to hear your experience, a lot of times you end up ignition or like pre-ignition limited on a turbocharged car where we almost never actually make it to our theoretical max base timing, I think, um, because yeah. we always end up detonation or, uh, you know, knock limited on them rather than having that power drop off. We, we kind of miss that point. So I think a lot of the um, and by miss that point, I mean, we don't have that overshoot safety zone, right? Where we start to see power drop, so we knock it back. We run into knock before before we run into a power drop off at any at any kind of load cell. So, you know, like you take a lot of those old V8, you know, tuning mentalities, you know, advance it till it pings, knock off a bit, you know, and they didn't have an application. And I'm saying this as, you know, I've been in Subarus for six or seven years not the 80 years like some of you guys um hey but hey, hey okay i mean so what realistically a, a billion i don't know what you dinosaurs have been up to but um <laughs> but so you know but I've, I've always kind of been into cars and stuff and, I, and that mentality i think is what led to some of the early tuner car or turbocharged car you know maybe you know i'd be curious really also to hear like you know in europe where they were did they have kind of the same um knowledge growth curve when it came to turning these tuning these turbocharged cars because they didn't have that muscle car pedigree there that we have here right so i wonder if some of these lessons that we learned we learned we had to learn to come back from that muscle car mentality back to the tuner market you know mm-hmm. i don't know if that yeah, thought made sense as it came out of my head but yeah it yeah. made sense no, in my it, brain I don't know if it's true or not, but I'll say I'll say definitely I feel like the old V8s were very robust and they also weren't boosted. So they they didn't have as severe detonation. And I think you were saying pre-ignition. You should think of it as detonation because the, the effect yeah. of too much advance is, is detonation, not pre-ignition. But as we as we gave cars too much advance, muscle cars or modern cars. Yeah, they, they all would detonate, but the um, the V8s can take it. They don't mind. They didn't mind it so much because the cylinder pressures weren't as high. Um, and because they were grossly over-engineered, they, they were crudely engineered, a lot of waste of, of materials. These Subarus are so delicate. The aluminum cases are so thin and, and porous. Um, and things walk pistons. around. Yeah. yeah, the pistons the pistons are so brittle compared to the old cast aluminum pistons. These days, you know, the old cast pistons and V8s were very malleable and they didn't mind some detonation. These ones are very brittle, they do. Um, but I'll say to answer the question further is that uh, I don't feel that the EJ from Subaru, which I mainly worked with for years, was as knock limited as as the newer engines, but they were very close to knock limited. So an EJ, uh, you know, and, and all of this comes from efficiency. The, the more we raise compression ratios, the, the more dangerous it is and the closer we get to, to being knock limited by uh, reaching peak power at the same time or even after it starts to detonate. So we don't we don't like that situation because it'll damage the engine over time. And usually engines use knock sensors to avert disaster. So the EJ was uh, a Subaru engine that's very delicate 
with regard to knock. And because of that, it had a very, uh, among tuners and among the aftermarket community, it had a very notorious rep reputation for breaking cylinder or ring lands, but it also had a very notorious reputation for not allowing it to knock on your data logs or on your, uh, on your access port screen. People would get very upset when they saw it pull more than three degrees of timing or one degree of timing. And it's rightly so. If, However, there are cases with built engines and even noisy cars where that microphone that the knock sensor is will overreact to things like people shifting or throttling on and off strangely. Um, and so to move that on further, uh, when we got to the FA engine, which is the new Subaru, I am convinced that is uh, knock limited on 91 octane, but not 93 octane, which I don't have access to here. But I've noticed when I uh, tune those far away, I don't run into the same knock limited aspect on the dyno. Uh, they seem to be perfectly suited to that. And it's possibly the 10 and three quarter to one compression, I believe is the big key, not the direct injection. But we do see that, um, that those engines are pretty knock limited, yeah, from the factory. You can instantly make that not so with things like flex fuel and ethanol or front mount intercoolers. But the FA is an engine that I would never tune on 91 uh, without a dyno <laughs> uh, because oh, it's, it is so knock limited that we want to see that. We want to, well, we, you're, you're probably going to see the, the problem on the dyno, but you want to push it slowly and controlled. Where the EJ, as we're pushing it on the dyno, we can actually start to not see any power gains as we give it power more advanced. So you'll get to a point and you'll be like, all right, here's another degree. Oh, look, the power is actually the same as the last one. That's a point where you kind of want to go back, back to off. the last one and then back to that one. This yeah. is this is advancing the distributor until you hear it ping and then you back it off a little bit. There's 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 that yeah, same analogy. With the, with, it's not though, because well, it's, we it's don't not, let it knock. This is not instead knock. of using ping, we're using power. So yeah. rather than listening for ping, we're saying, hey, look, it reached the peak. And the coolest thing is when we use really good fuels like methanol or ethanol, it won't knock at all. I've gone, ah, this is insane. I, I accidentally hit the, held the shift key down the other day during a class, not the other day, a couple of years ago, but I was showing timing at wide open throttle and how it wouldn't ping if I over advanced. And on the software, it advances about a third of a degree per button stroke. It advances a full degree if you hold the shift down. And I held the shift down while showing the students that I was on ethanol 60 degrees of advance with no knock at all <laughs> wow. at wide open throttle. And, and, uh, and like, wow, what a great, I mean, the power was falling off drastically. And it's such a great example of why a dyno is so important with these fuels is because if you were to try to be an old school tuner, you could go for a hundred degrees of advance and you'd be like, that's right. I'll back it off two degrees. I'll give it 98 degrees. And you would have a slow yeah. car that was melting uh, a lot of parts. So, yeah. all right. I, I want to touch on fuel because, because you kind of hit it a couple points here. So we definitely want to talk about that, but Dussex, you've been awful quiet there. I can see the wheels turning. Are there any questions that you have that you want to touch on before we talk about fuel? I think, um, my biggest thing, and this is stepping it way back to the beginning part, um, is you have all these auxiliary sensors like um, your O2 sensor, you've got your NOx sensors and all these other things. Like working with Jeanette's cars and these new CAN bus cars, the amount of information that you have to like go through is insane. But it's kind of nice because you can find these causations. So like with Jeanette's car, when she was having issues on track with her car just losing power, it Which took a me a while to go through it. Yeah, on a supercharged BRZ, I was able to find that, oh, look at these EGTs are climbing, and the uh, um, the timing is getting more and more retarded. And you could see that causation, 
And I was like trying to go through everything. And there's just so much data trying to compile it, break it down into stuff that you could sort through was insane. But I mean, I don't tune my own cars, but I do know enough about like what's happening in a tune to look for stuff. And um, I don't know. So like, it's exciting to listen to like kind of everybody talk about all the different aspects and stuff of it, but it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's exciting stuff. Uh, ethanol. I'm in the love hate relationship with ethanol. So <laughs> I'm excited to see kind of what you guys see about it. But like for me, I've been running 104, 100, 104 octane all year in the, in the yellow car with like with no sensors, <laughs> like uh-huh. just but no O2 sensor. I mean, I was running my own, you know, wide band just to keep an eye on it, but it didn't seem to care about anything that I did. Whereas with ethanol, I get worried about, you know, how hot is it getting? Is it, you know, cause it's splash point a lot lower, you know, and pressure changes it a lot and stuff. So I don't know. So I'm, I'm interested to hear about the fuel, but all right, definitely sure. not completely in the dark. <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah. and, and the yellow car just is is a, as a second footnote that you're talking about the Taiku car, which was a purpose built race car. Yeah. So its function yeah. is is slightly different because it is a purpose built race car. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so let's let's talk about E85 or ethanol. Uh, another earthquake for Harvey. <laughs> Technical oh. difficulties. Technical <laughs> difficulties. That ladder hey, is fire. If you guys ever want to see a dino, <laughs> hey, there's the screw. Talk about behind <laughs> yeah, the scenes. The, that, that is the bed movement of the dino. Yes. <laughs> what was the topic? Okay, so ethanol or E85, and and what is what is different between pump gas, E85, and maybe race gas? If you want to, like a higher octane fuel, kind of like you you talked about, you could see a difference between 91 and 93 octane. Well, what's the difference to then something that's largely ethanol-based like E85? Sure, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about uh, octane is, is the big difference. Um, definitely, there's so many other differences. The other is stoichiometry. So ethanol is, you have to use about 40% more. It's about nine and a half to one air-fuel ratio just to create a stable, perfect match to create that sto- stoichiometry. Have, so you'd have to have nine and a half units of air to burn one unit of ethanol. Yeah, it takes much more. It also, uh, you said it has a lower flash point. I don't know what its flash point is, but it typically has a lower boiling point, which is yeah. um, the the which makes can make for things like um, vapor lock happen. Uh, you know, at about 150 degrees, it might it might uh, give you some hard times even under pressure. Um, and so we see that you have to do things with the fuel lines and stuff a little differently. But essentially, the the big the big bonus of ethanol is its octane. Ethanol's octane is uh, is rated about 110, but I've ha- I've I've tuned several cars versus on the same car same day versus C16, and I'll tell you, I think ethanol also offers a lot of cylinder cooling, which is the same as intercooling. So the ethanol is essentially a liquid intercooler. So is methanol. A lot of guys who run methanol on supercharging, you'll even see ice forming on the supercharger. Whereas if you were doing that on gas, you'd have incredible heat. Um, so. The, when we vaporize and, and spray this stuff, it, it, it drops a lot more heat than gasoline does. So that's all very good. And then I believe ethanol also has a cooler burning point. But essentially, the big difference for a guy like me and a guy at the track would be octane. And the octane is really uh, sort of a factor which talks about how resistant it is to detonation. So if I can um, you know, a lot of people talk about ethanol and ethanol, by the way, is also lower energy density than gasoline. Gasoline by mass has 
more energy in it than ethanol. And you'll find a lot of people who don't like ethanol because of this. They'll say, hey, the, the ethanol is actually way less powerful than, than gasoline by mass. And I say, yes, it is, but I can add a lot more timing and boost to the ethanol without detonation. So I can make more power in the same engine than you I could on gasoline. Of it. But there's, there's yeah, more to it. There's it. more to <laughs> ethanol. There's more, because like we talked about with, with people in, in the original school of thought of, of manipulating fueling, there's so many more benefits for running ethanol or E85 compared to pump gas just because it's alcohol-based fuel. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I, I think that ethanol has so many benefits. I am a big fan one of the drawbacks I'll say also to keep in mind is there's always going to be blow by. And when we have a lot more fuel in the, in the cylinder, a lot more of that fuel is going to get into the crankcase. Uh, uh, but with proper, mm -hmm. you know, crankcase venting and by heating up oil to the proper temperature, I don't believe there should ever be water, alcohol or gasoline left behind. Although you'll get a lot of terpenes that smell like it. So people will always come in and say, my oil is bad because it smells like ethanol. And I'm like, well, does it, is it, you have any liquids in it? No, the blow-by will always make your oil smell like combustion gases. And if you're burning a different fuel, it's gonna smell like that fuel. Um, so keep that in mind, but also that you will get more contaminants if you're not letting the car warm up all the way from ethanol than you would from gasoline. So that can also cause bearing failures and things like that. If I'm short cycling an ethanol engine, um, you, wanna, you wanna make sure that you're uh, getting your engine up to operating temperature, no matter what fuel you're using in a performance environment. There's there's definitely some more complexities to running E85, but but those benefits for the octane that's that's where the power comes in. That's where especially on a higher compression engine, that's where the magic starts to happen because you are not you're not as uh, I guess knock limited or or whatever you'd want to call it because the fuel just basically will not ignite until you tell it to with the spark plug. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, uh, detonation happens when we tell it to ignite with the spark plug, but detonation also happens because not only are we told it to ignite with the spark plug, but um, it's at the wrong time and the pressure is too much and the gas all wants to burn at the same moment. So yeah. uh, I think the ethanol will resist that as well. It'll just make less power as you give it too much advance. And I guess the, 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 the most, the simplest way I could put what the benefits are to E85, other than it being much less prone to detonate or knock on its own, just because of the properties of the fuel, you get the cooling benefits. That's that's a big one. That was one of the reasons we switched to it on our in our Pike Speed cars. We 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 were using race gas for a long time, but race gas is just a more refined version of of standard gasoline, and so we didn't have this these cooling benefits of of. Uh, ethanol or, or, or an alcohol-based fuel and we just couldn't keep the car cool in that environment and so we finally said all right we've got to move to, to e85 to see if those cooling benefits of this of this fuel if we can make use of it and it seems seems like it looks that we can uh, obviously I mean, there's so many yeah, people out there that are running it it's it, it it's kind of a no-brainer it just took us a while to get there it's i'll a say vital a, part a, it's a vital part of my cooling package i can't I couldn't stay cool <laughs> if I didn't see on E85. If I even lower blends, um, you know, yeah, I know we've Harvey, you're a big proponent of once you get to kind of that E60, 80, 70 um, blend, there's not a whole lot of power benefit coming from that. But but I aim for that at least E85 level. 
because that even even a drop in the percentage of alcohol in my fuel reduces my cooling and I would, I would overheat by the end of a run. So it's yeah, a, and you guys are hot. It's a vital part, vital part of my cooling package. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing is, is that you, you, we talked about how you can add timing to make power. It's because the fuel is so resistant to igniting before you tell it to with the spark plug, you can apply more timing with, with the 85 and that's where the power comes from. Now there's some, there's some, some caveats to that, but just kind of in a nutshell, that's that's the benefit of running a fuel like E85 is that you can you can use more timing without having as many issues, especially as you would with with a pump pump gas or like a 91 octane fuel, and that's where you know, you can see big gains in power just between switching between these two different fuels. Oh yeah, IATs too for sure. I mean, you look at yep. just how much of a difference a 20 or 30 degree sweep and in intake air temperature makes when that combustion is happening inside there, knowing that it's that much cooler means you can, I mean, it's a denser charge and the denser it is, yeah. the more power potential it has and the more power potential, the pressure. And, and, and the compression. Stuff. If you're, if you're starting with the gas and fuel mixture, that's 30 degrees cooler and you're compressing it. And it, mm-hmm. as you're compressing a gas, it has to heat up. But if you're starting at a, at a lower temperature, the, the in temperature is going to also be lower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's where that's where cylinder cooling is really important, just to keep everything in the engine happy. Um, you know, because you don't want you don't want the the components in in the cylinder, like the piston, the cylinder walls, the engine, all that sort of stuff, to really be adding a lot of extra heat to that compression cycle, because then that that's kind of pushing you in the other direction. It's taking away from where you want to go. So if you can keep everything cooler, it just makes everything happier, keeps everything more reliable. Sure. Yeah. Another thing I'll say is I see a lot quicker spool up on turbocharged engines with ethanol. And I'm not sure why, but I believe it's the mass flow. You know, we're talking yep. about we need 40% mm-hmm. more mass. That's 40% yep. more liquid fuel going through the intake. And that's 40% more mass going through the exhaust. So I think it's, it's yep. hitting the exhaust wheel and giving it, it more force. It's starting as a liquid, but you're burning it and converting it to a gas. And so then there's more gas volume coming out of the exhaust. Mm-hmm. Or more mass, even if it's more the same mass, body, yeah. we have a higher mass uh, flow rate through the turbine. Sure. So that should help it spool, and it does, and it's it's a great effect of of ethanol. Um, I'll say, you know, race gas, same kind of thing, where it has this knock resistance. And and getting back to this knock resistance, I'll say, you know, a lot of times we have, since we work with so many turbocharged cars, even though we talk about the EJ not being a very knock resistant car. There's always a place where, as we raise boost, that things start to get pretty knock resistant uh, on your system. Uh, if you have no, you know, a top-mounted intercooler on 91, as you raise the boost, it might knock. But then when we switch to the ethanol, sometimes it doesn't mind that heat at all. We can keep adding timing and more boost where the gasoline wouldn't have accepted that tune on the same car, same exact right. car. We can put in the ethanol and keep raising the boost and keep seeing more and more power safely. So sure. uh, I love it for that. Well, in I just realized there's a last key point that I want to touch on here if we can, which is, okay, you, you've got a dyno, you have the ability to take all of, like, do a run and collect all this information. And then this prints out in what we all know and love as a dyno sheet. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people just obsess about these things. But I'm, I'm going to argue that people are obsessed about them for the wrong reason, because they just want to see this number. They want to see a 500 up there and they want to see this peak. But there's so much more information in a dyno sheet that actually every piece, every mark of, the, of each line on that dyno sheet is a piece of information. 
And I think that's that's kind of as, as we're kind of winding down here. I, I want to make sure that we we talk about that just how much real information there is in a dyno sheet and that and what what you would look or look for in it. Sure. Yeah, I'll pull one up really quickly. I don't even know what the last car I tuned was, but let's take a look here. Sure. So it was making Always three. Pulling it up. Go ahead. Yeah, it was a stopper. The thing, the thing I use dyno sheets most for is shift points. So like, mm. you know, if you think about it, like your ideal shift point being like your highest average horsepower at your lowest gear ratio for your highest mechanical advantage for torque to put to the ground. So that's, I, I always ask Harvey for my dyno sheets. And yeah, I think at first, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but I think you were worried that I was looking for that peak number or something, but like, I want that curve because I want to be able to see like where on that curve, you know, the power is going to start dropping off. But I'm still at a higher mechanical advantage because a lower gear ratio. But if I can shift and then hit like another peak of power or something like that, that's this that's is, one of the coolest is, things I like about dyno sheets. This is, is the power band. Is yeah, can you shift right, and stay in the yeah. power band? Sure. Yeah. Oh, my phone having a hard time with this. Sorry, guys. It's such a strange camera. It is. So not anyway, on yeah, board. let's talk about the uh, the horsepower and the torque and the and the dyno sheet. But that's really only part of the data that this shows. Oops. Hang on. You guys still with me? Yep. Yeah. yeah. All right. So part of the data, you know, here's a list of stuff. We can see the speed in the front, the speed in the rear, the torque in the front, the torque in the rear, the torque split through the center, um, the uh, derived torque, which would be how it calculates what it is at the crankshaft, the derived RPM, which is what it calculates the RPM speed is at the crankshaft. Uh, we have hundreds of things and in each one of these, if I move uh, oh, wow, this flare is bad. But if I move this data point to any of these points um, on here, all of these numbers change on this little on this little sheet for this data. So I can see all of this stuff um, moving, but I can also compare run to run. And I can see like this is the final run in purple. You can see it's the highest because that's what we do here is we, you know, add power as we make these calibrations. Um, but I can get rid of a number of them and I can go back. Oh, wow. I want to see like several runs ago and you can see that I've gone a little bit leaner. Uh, I believe this was on ethanol and, and the, the blue, the light, the purple is on ethanol and the blue one's on gasoline. So we can see that, you know, that they're running similar boost or whatever it is. But the data that's on the dyno sheet, you're correct. It's, it's all very important. And what I look for is the area under the curve. Like just uh, uh, to give you an example, uh, wow, this, I have too much glare to do this almost, but uh, we well, have this. And Harvey, you can just go ahead and talk about it and send me the dyno sheet and then I can put it up on the screen for everybody so that it's just a scan and don't worry about the, don't worry about catching it on the phone. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, what we want to see is, you know, the, the dyno sheet can show us the split of torque through the engine or through the drivetrain. It can show us the crankcase pressure or vacuum, which is very important is, and you're honestly part of why it's very important. Um, and we can see the boost, we can see the air fuel ratio, and we can see the horsepower and torque any RPM. And what that allows us to do is compare it and say, I give a, an engine five degrees of advance. I may see places where it needs it and places where it made no difference at all. So the dyno sheet lets me localize the changes and, and see where they make the difference. The other thing is we want to see um, if gains happened in spool up or if, uh, if the area makes more sense. Sometimes we'll turn up the boost and the heat soak will lose peak horsepower at the right end of the table or of the graph, but on the left end, we might pick up so much more torque and horsepower early with the high boost that it's worth it to just short shift the car 
and and use the, the new power band which is much- which is the power band that Taz was talking about and and, yeah. and here what we're talking about is torque like when when does the torque come up how how long and how does how does the peak torque look like what is the shape of that and then where does the torque fall off because that sure. that, that torque I guess spoilers if, if you take EFI 101 and if you're curious about more information about this you definitely should torque is a measure of the engine's efficiency. So the engine, the most efficient that the engine is going to be is wherever that torque number is the highest. And, and then basically you just, then you look at the shape of the curve around those, those points. And like, that's, this is where you're most efficient. And then on the, on the far ends of that, that's where the engine is less efficient. Now there can be a myriad of reasons as to why, but, but if you think of torque as efficiency and wanting to stay in that efficiency range, um, that's that's where you realize like that torque torque number in, in that torque shape uh, or the shape of the torque graph, that's a, probably one of the most important parts of the dyno sheet, not the horsepower number, whatever that that peak is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say that's another thing. And I'll I'll, I'll argue the contrary for a moment. And that okay. is that with the horsepower curve, we know what the most work the engine can do is over time. We can't feel that. We can feel torque pretty well on the road. So I think a lot of people will try to maximize that torque curve by uh, with the butt dyno by short shifting and stuff like that. And that's honestly, it's probably a, gr- a good tactic for uh, lower speeds and getting out of the hole and launch and all that stuff for Tasso to get out of the hole. But the truth yeah. is you almost want to be looking at the power curve, the horsepower curve, and trying to get as much of that stuffed into your uh, gear changes as you can. You even want to sort of crest and come down and keep that power up there because even though the torque has already dropped off at that point, you're doing the most amount of work that is possible uh, mm. with with the most with the power. Um, so your your car should, even though it doesn't set you in the seat as hard, it should pass the car that may be making less power but more torque at that point. Um, mm. uh, and that's that's an interesting concept. Oh, is that oh the reason such a weird thing is from torque two things you need to know to know what your horsepower is and the reason for that is because we're trying to calculate how much work is being done over time and even though the torque may be lower if i can do more work i'm going to move farther down the road in the same amount of time yeah yeah i mean the horsepower is a function of torque by rpm right so just because the torque is is declining at that rpm it's being the horsepower number which is basically the amount of force that it's making is multiplied by its rpm so when they both start falling off then like harvey's saying the amount of work that that engine can do is now now uh, a net a net negative yeah but like uh here on this on this graph right here the horsepower is actually or the torque is dropping but the horsepower is still climbing and if we trusted our butt dyno we'd be mistaken to trust our butt dyno in that situation um and that's that's common for a lot. In fact, there's a, a rate at which the torque will drop where the horsepower will flatten out, and there's a rate it'll drop even more where it'll drop. But to us, it always feels like the torque is dropping. And so mm. if we can hold the torque, we know it's always going to drop as the volumetric efficiency goes away, which unless you're in a Koenigsegg, it should happen with those free valves or whatever. Uh, right. <laughs> you're going to be falling off in torque. But if we can hold the torque well enough, the horsepower will continue to climb, even though our again right. the butt dyno would say, "Hey, you're you're getting let off," you know. And and our our senses are poor enough that uh, you know it, we can't. I can't feel how fast torque falls off as I go down the road, uh, and my mind can't grasp it. So the dyno is really the only way we can sort of calculate what the power is doing as that torque is falling in the higher RPMs. 
Yes. Yeah. So, so that would be the other, the other key to take away from a dyno sheet is that the shape of the horsepower curve is how much work the car can do. So yeah. as long as the horsepower curve is going up or is, is maintaining a high, high value, then the car can do a lot of work, which we can think of as acceleration. But as soon as the horsepower mm-hmm. number starts to fall off, then that means, okay, well, now everything is gone. It, it, we, we've really gone too far away from the engine's peak efficiency to the point now where the engine cannot do as much work as we would want it to. And then like back to Tasso's point about a, a power band, that, that's a good indicator once that horsepower curve really starts to fall off. That's probably a good point where you would want to shift at whatever that RPM is and then hopefully come back and start the whole process over again. Stay underneath your, your peak efficiency and the peak power. Yeah. Oh, another one would be that you, you actually wouldn't want to wait till it like peaks. You kind of want it to go down a little because as you shift, you drop back. So you kind of want to mm-hmm. get that little peak in there over and over and over as you're shifting. Yeah. So, well, then that's, can, you can calculate this because yeah. each gear has a gear ratio, right? Yep. And yeah. so you could calculate not only the RPM drop, but also the actual, um, with the mechanical advantage you gain by being in a lower gear. Um, it's better to be at a slightly lower horsepower number in a lower gear than a slightly higher horsepower number in a higher gear because you're actually able to use more mechanical advantage. So multiply the torque. Way, yeah. yeah, I don't know which way this looks like for you guys. Like, is that your left over here? So like as it's That's coming fine. up and building, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever. As it's yeah. coming up and building at that peak point, that's when I get my next gear. I want to get to this RPM. And then it's going to, as long as it's not like falling off of a cliff, I want to stay in that downhill portion of my horsepower curve. Mm. Sure. Um, and, and for me, that works out um, because my split between gears and stuff like that. And actually, you know, with a bunch of things, your tuning, the turbo dynamics, turbo, all that kind of stuff, right? The twin it scroll. all stays. Um, yeah. The twin entry stuff helps kind of extend that extend that power band and that's something i was starting to talk about before on the twin scroll stuff is you can extend that efficiency window for your turbo twin scrolls mm-hmm. don't make turbos okay. cool faster or whatever they just allow you to extend that efficiency window and so if you can have that nice nice wide efficiency window it's easy to stay in that place where it makes sense for actually putting power to the ground which is ultimately what acceleration is hmm. yep absolutely very under the curve Area, it's all about area under the curve. Right. All right. Well, we we have we have gone on a little bit further than I want to, so I kind of want to wind wind this down. But uh, Dussex and Tasso, are there any other questions or topics you wanted to hit on before we kind of wrap this thing up? Yeah, but a bonus round. How about we tease it right now, and then we'll close it off, and then we'll have a bonus round of methanol and Subarus. Okay. Uh Why? Why and how? All right. Fair enough. All right. So we, we will. If that's okay with you guys, we'll wrap it up here for, for the standard episode, and then we'll, we'll come back. We'll talk about, God help us, methanol. All right. Yeah, like, comment, subscribe, and look for the bonus video. Yes. Well, thanks very much to everybody for listening. Thanks for, thanks for your support, as always. Uh, thanks to Harvey for joining us. And until next time, as always, stay tuned with Flatirons Tuning. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. Once again, we'd like to let you know that your support is what makes this show possible. Be sure to check out our online store at flatirons.tuning.com for any of your aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts needs. And as always, stay tuned with Flatirons Tuning.